I'm going where the pinto goes. <laughs> exactly. The pinto goes. Oh, we're talking about the we're talking about the horse pinto, right? We're not talking yeah, about yeah. the four pinto. Okay. No, 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 no. God no. Karate in the Garage. I'm Corey Culp. I'm Freddie Woff. Today we have a classic from 1985 for you from writer-director Lawrence Kasdan, Silverado. Yeah, man. This is a good one. Man, this movie is so rich and so just chock full of throwbacks to old westerns, you know, John Ford-style storytelling, and it's fucking amazing. This is because I've revisited it twice this week, and I think you did the same because- Oh, yeah. There's so much going on in this movie, and it's just mesmerizing watching the whole thing. And for a movie that runs, that has a runtime that it has, it does not feel that way. It's like a sneeze, and it's over. Yeah, absolutely. It does not waste any time. It does not ever drag down. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's up and it runs, man. And it's a it's a it's a sprinting. It's a sprint for the finish, but it's also a marathon. Pick time. <laughs> One of the things that we were discussing privately, just texting each other, was how many fresh faces and people on the cusp of just blowing up in this. And we figured the best way to kind of touch on that is just to list them in the beginning and uh, go from there. So it's one of those ones you got to take a deep breath and kind of like let it out. So Yeah, man. So uh, uh, let's breathe in and let's get on. The main four of this movie, we got Kevin Klein, Scott Glenn, Kevin Costner and Danny Glover. There are the main four in this playing Peyton, Emmett, Jake, and Mal Johnson. The introduction of those guys are so great, and we'll, but we'll get to that. Well, I was going to say, uh, on a t- and on top of that, I mean, it's funny because really the only guy, the only, well, Klein and uh, Costner had been in the big chill <laughs> a few years before. Right. As we spoke about before, Costner really, he's just his wrist. Right. <laughs> uh, Danny Glover uh, was coming off of i think places in the heart and witness this is before lethal weapon uh scott glenn had been in a bunch of things uh you know probably most famous biggest thing he'd been at that point was urban cowboy i would say right and the right stuff the right stuff right same year yep there you go kevin costner had really not uh this was this was a coming out party for costner right um he'd been in fandango think the year before this or maybe fandango was released after this was a hit i can't remember direct because i didn't you know i didn't bother to look it up (laughs) well uh the thing about it is apparently according to the extras on the disc uh because they interview costner and costner says that kazan promised him a movie a role (laughs) in his next movie because of how the big and he's like i didn't you know i never asked for that because I just had a great experience on the big show. It, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, he wasn't beholden to me or anything, but this is, this was my payback or if you, if you will, you know, even though Costner's like, I wasn't expecting it and he didn't have to do it. But, um, so this was kind of like, Hey man, you, you ended up on the editing room floor, but now, you know, we're doing this. So, which I thought was kind of cool. But on top of our main four, this movie's loaded with people. Loaded. I mean, and not just, and not just people, I mean, I'm talking about 
people like Sheb Woolley, <laughs> who's right? best known for uh, his novelty song, Purple People Eater. <laughs> um, John Cleese shows up. Yep. Uh, we got John, we've got the Tyra Kazin family, Meg, uh, who is uh, his, Lawrence's wife, uh, John and Jake, his sons who are both directors, uh, show up playing young boys at yep. the, uh, at the first outpost, I believe where Cleese is the sheriff where the story starts. Right. I mean, you get Roseanne Arquette's in this movie, uh, James Gammon, uh, who's a great character actor. Uh, like we said, Brian Danahy, Linda Hunt, Jeff Goldblum. Joe Seneca plays Danny Danny Glover's father. This is also um, the same year that he did Crossroads. Right. And that was the movie I really discovered him. And he's, oh, man, that movie's so good. There's another one we got to cover. Oh, absolutely. We have to do a Walter Hill month. I got a whole list. 1985, dude. <laughs> what, is, what is this in 1985? I know. This is like our sixth movie. Hey, everybody, everybody, pra- everybody praises 1999, but 85, dude, that's our, that's our childhood that's year. Our, that's our money. That's our, uh, yeah, yeah, that's where we're, that's, we're pumping that fucking well. Lynn Whitfield as Ray. And she's great uh, in it, yeah. Yeah, she's awesome. Jeff Fahey as Tyree, the bastard. Yep. I, again, like I said, last, I totally forgot Fahey was even in this movie. Right. Um, Amanda Wiss shows up. Yay. Amanda, same year that she did, Better Off Dead. Right. Uh, Richard Jenkins uh, makes a appearance. Yes, he does. Brian James, like we said, uh, uncredited, oddly enough. So, yeah, man. And then there, there's a deleted scene where... Um, the uh, Mark Kasdan, brother of Lawrence Kasdan, uh, and co-writer, uh, it was in the movie. He played a he played Doc Skinner, but they cut it out of the movie. Boo! As much as you say, go get the doctor. It, exactly, they say they it like three times, <laughs> but we don't ever see him. But uh, Mark Kasdan was Doc Skinner, and they did shoot a scene with him, which is on the uh, the disc I have, and you can see the deleted scene. It's uh, him, Lynn Winfield, Lynn Whitfield, and uh, Linda Hunt. Oh, so oh, so he was tending to. Ray, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, see that? That's crazy shit. Yeah, so there's a, there's the rundown on the cast, man. It's crazy. And then there's a bunch of other people who, have, you know, I can't name everybody, but there are a lot of familiar faces from, uh, you know, you, you'd be like, there are people you'll pick out from other things, you know, especially in the 80s. Oh, um, did we mention Ray Baker? We did not. Ray Baker playing the not-so-heavy, heavy Ethan McKendrick in this. And you hear his name a lot before you finally see him. And you're like, oh, and it's in... What's funny about Ray, Ray's one of those guys whose name you don't recognize or you don't make the connection to the face, but you've seen him in so much. He's totally, but there you go. Oh, so <laughs> wow. We, we're, it took us eight minutes just to cover the cast. The cast. All right. Well, okay, okay. We're moving on. Yeah. I mean, we start in darkness and we're like, what are we, we're looking at, uh, looking at somebody just beyond that. There's light, and then we move forward, and then there's this beautiful shot. And there's the world of Silverado. The movie is so weird in that the opening, right? The opening, we did, we meet Emmett. This, this is Scott Glenn. It's a little mining shack or something. Yeah, right? I mean, and, and the, when they're panning across everything, where's the sound? Did, did I forget to turn the sound up? Because I'm running through the 5-1, right? I can't hear anything. What's going on? It's just because there isn't any. <laughs> it's just the sound designed as it is. So... When he gets ambushed, which he does, it's a little more, more, more shocking, a little more deliberate than just hearing sound ahead of ahead of that. Yeah, it's beautiful though, man. It's such a great like, uh, it's such a great way to start the movie, especially when they move, you know, whoop, through that opening and you know, and then bang, we're right in the middle of it, and then we're off to the races. And you know, it, it was great about it. You don't know his name, you just nope. recognize Scott Glenn's face once you see it. 
but you know really quick and in a very short amount of time, 30 seconds or so, that he is smart. <laughs> yep. And very aware of his surroundings. And he makes he dispatches these three dudes pretty quickly. Yeah, man. Uh, with really without even thinking about it. <laughs> There's not even a blink. From from a deep sleep. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All that ninja training paid off. So off he goes, right? And we, we see Emmett just trailing along, and he sees a body. <laughs> right. Guy lying in the middle of the desert. Just dude just chilling. He's like, what the, what's this guy doing? Looks like he's taking a nap, a yeah. dirt nap. Just You just see him in his red long johns, and he rolls <laughs> up. I, I love the shot so much, by the way, because his legs are crossed, his feet are crossed. Right. <laughs> like he's just relaxing. <laughs> totally. And when you hear his dialogue later, that makes that shot even funnier. Right. It's like, it's kind of like, he's just like, well, this is where, you know, he's, he was on his way to wherever. And then he just like, I'm going to lie down and take a rest. Yep. He's like, it's like, I wasn't going to get anywhere. He'd just been robbed and left to die stripped of almost all of his clothes. That's why he was just left there. He figured I walked for a little bit and what the hell can I do, man? This is where I'm going to go. And he sat down or laid down and put his feet up more or less. That he did. And that's where Emmett finds him. Emmett, who is on his way to Silverado to get his brother, Jake, has a second horse with him, so that makes it all really easy for Peyton to hop on the horse with him and carry on with him. So anyway, they finally make their way to Turley, which is along the way there, right? Emmett and Peyton end up meeting uh, Mal while they're there too. But before all that, Emmett gives gives uh, Peyton a few bucks to, yep, to, to, to get go, some clothes. To get some clothes. And the, the running line that he's got in it, I'm good for it. I'm good for it. Yes, because he, he, he seems like Peyton owes everybody some money. Yeah. Kind of let you know a little bit more about the dude, you know, did he, was he really left to die or did he just rob and left to die or was he take, or were the things taken from him owed? Yes, know? exactly. <laughs> so he's standing there getting ready to go find himself some clothes and he looks across the town and he sees the dude on his horse. Yep. And he immediately just looks over to the general store, runs in and starts <laughs> Helping himself to the guns and trying to find him a weapon because it's clear he's going to go take his horse back. Oh, yeah, man. Somebody's somebody's paying with blood. So the homeboy stops him and says, hey, man, you just can't run out of here with the with the gun. And he's like, look, I paid it. There's my money. He's like, no, no, that's not going to get you that gun. That's a $20 gun. Well, what will this give me? And he hands him over this piece of shit that's just falling apart. Right. It's classic Western too. Here's a piece of shit. Right. The wheel falls out. <laughs> so, but he walks out to the, out to the middle of the town, fumbling around, trying to load the gun and keep the gun together. It's not unlike the gun they give court in Quick and the Dead. Very much. Like that. <laughs> right. It's probably the same gun. It's this piece of shit. <laughs> so his horse thief sees him and he's like, oh, it's easy to see with a guy in his red, yeah. red tighties, right? Right. Sunburned and wearing bright red underwear <laughs> the assailant starts taking shots at him and by the time he's close enough to really get a good shot at Peyton boom he's out off the horse he goes a couple of dudes from the cavalry kind of a Sheb Wooly yep he that's another cavalry one. sergeant Wooly and he says hey hey what the hell what's going on here and he's like this is mine well how can you prove that's yours and that's when we hear the voice the voice of Brian Dennehy's Cobb yeah dude right he sounds like he sounds like God <laughs> And he says the name without him, without Kevin Klein having to say his name, Payton, and then spells it for him too. P-A-D-E-N. Go ahead, boys, pull down the saddle, and there it is, carved into the hard leather of that saddle, Payton. 
oh shit, that guy knows him. Right. And obviously, and now we're like, well, who's, who's this guy? <laughs> right. And they have a very uncomfortable exchange. You can tell that, yes, at some point, these guys, and I kept thinking, this is kind of like the early days between Hackman and Court, <laughs> right? Right. This is a, uh, this is very similar to a setup from a movie we covered, their relationship anyway. Very much so. And you have to, when you're having that moment where Peyton's looking at him with trepidation because, well, we're discovering something about him. The dude just bailed him out, provided identity for him, basically got him back what was stolen from him, and he's still apprehensive. He's like, oh, dude, you're probably the worst person that I ever want to run to right now much less the point of the person that's helping me out because you're going to want something from me. Head into the saloon, both uh, Emmett and Peyton, and while they're in there just kind of enjoying themselves a little meal, and in comes Danny Glover playing Mal Johnson. Sits down his stuff, and he says, I haven't had a shot of whiskey or a bed in 10 days. The maid, the barmaiden, she's a little apprehensive about giving him the, the drink. So he just puts down his money, says, give me the bottle. She gives the bottle, walks over to the register with that loud cha-ching, drops it in there, and out comes the bar owner. And he takes a look and goes, oh, well, I'm not going to serve this guy here. What are you doing here? And starts giving Mal grief because we all know why they're giving Danny Glover yeah, grief. We don't serve your kind here. We don't serve your kind here. This is just post-Civil War, so there's still a lot of butthurt individuals. <laughs> just just a little. <laughs> and then this is also where we get to meet the fantastic uh, Sheriff Langston kind of wanders in and kind of uh, we see what kind of douchebag he is. This is after I have a little showdown, right? Between mm-hmm. Mal, Mal and a couple of uh, the bar owners' uh, henchmen. Goons. Yeah, goons. They have a little fight, and, but we know that Emmett knows Mal. We know that he knows him somehow, just the way the game carries himself. They don't know each other personally. We find out later on. You think they know each other. You know, Peyton says, hey, I'm, should we help him? This looks, feels, seems a little uneven. He goes, for who? Right. <laughs> exactly. And then Mal makes quick work of the two dudes. And busts up a couple tables. And the bar owner wants to pull a shotgun on him and handles him, too breaking bottles everywhere, breaking the mirror behind him, and as you said, busted up all the furniture. Yeah, lots of lots of damage, and that's when we see John Cleese's Sheriff Langston come walking in. Oh, look at this mess. Well, he clearly is not a, a fan of, of Mal either, just by the color of his skin. Right. But he's also not an unfair man because he knows what kind of a shit the bar, the bar owner is and, and his goons. So he just says, tell you what, uh, you can go off on your way, get the hell out of town, and I uh, won't make you pay for all this crap. And that's what happens. But not before Mal walks over, <laughs> takes that shot glass that's filled up, that very first shot glass he filled up, slowly takes it, throws it back, sets it down, and out he goes. Says so much about about that character right off the bat, saying, I ain't taking shit from anybody. And he has a confidence, and he's obviously a very skilled fighter, and that's a man you want to hook up with. And surprisingly, they'll find their way back to, to Emmett and Peyton later on. Yeah, absolutely, they will. While they're there, they find out that Emmett's brother, Jake, is there. He's in town. He's in Turley. And I mentioned earlier that we were going to Silverado to rescue Jake. That was my mistake. Jake is actually here in Turley. And he's, and he's going to be hanging the next day. That's correct. There's a hanging in the square. Yep. That's one of the first things you see when you get to town, too, is them building 
<laughs> building, they're building the gallows. They're, they're, they're banging it up. And you can just tell it's fresh wood. <laughs> well, as it would be, it's weird because I don't want to go too far on it, but it's funny because like, uh, same thing. I built a sign, you know, there's this sign for bright hope in bone tomahawk. And I remember sitting and the person behind me is like, that sign doesn't have any age on it. And I just wanted to turn around and go, that's because they just built it. Good God. So yeah, the gallows look brand new, but they, you know, they always look, even if you watch hang them high, I mean, they're, you know, they look new. They're not ramshackle because you, you're hanging people on them. Right. You got to walk around on them. So both Emmett and Peyton go pay a visit to Jake and, uh, you know, Jake's giving the rundown of what happened. Oh, all I did was just kiss a girl. Yeah, of course. <laughs> just kiss her. And that's Jake's running line too. Right. He says that two or three times. And he kisses a lot of girls. And it's it's not so much the kissing that's the problem. It's what happens afterwards that gets Jake in trouble. It's who he's kissing. Yeah. Anyway, having a he had to end up having a showdown because homeboy was going to shoot him in the back. But he claims it was all in self defense. But well, we see later on for ourselves how much self defense he needs to be taking because uh, well he gets Jake gets himself into some shit once in a while. So we find out like well I can't do much about it. You know you're gonna die in at at dawn. No, ten a.m. Oh, sorry. I figured those things are being done at dawn, says Emmett as he walks out. Right. Emmett and Peyton walking together down the street saying, oh, he's not hanging. We're going to have to get him out of there. Exactly. We're going to break him out. What? Jailbreak. Jailbreak, Ben. What a West, what's a Western without a jailbreak? It's not a Western. He gets tossed into jail. Oh, good Lord. Hold on. Keep Keep that thought. So they leave the jail, they're hatching their plan. They, they, lo- they walk into the local saloon to have a nice cold beer. And again, we see this guy who kind of looks like Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. It's weird, man. I was like, holy shit, that guy looks like Leonardo DiCaprio with the beard and stuff right out of, uh, you know, his, his character from uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we cut back to Payton and Payton's just dead stare. And the guy knows, he, you know, the guy knows what he did. And the guy's like, what's up, friend? And he's like, you're wearing my hat and I want it back. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, yeah. So one thing leads to another, there's a gunfight. The guy tries to draw Peyton shoots him dead in the heart, picks the hat up, puts it on his head. And here comes the sheriff. <laughs> and guess where Peyton's going? He's joining Jake. Jake's got a roommate. Yay. Now there's two hangings, like two hangings, <laughs> double hanging, double hung as they say. <laughs> Jake's not one to stay in jail for very long. No, God, no. <laughs> and I've always found this funny. I'm like, what are they, you know, this is very, very simplistic locks back in the day. You know what I mean? And, but they left on, you know, Jake's got his belt and Jake takes off his belt and uses the pin on his belt to crack open the door. He's fiddling with the, with the jail door, trying to, the cell door, trying to get out. One of the deputies hears it and he goes, what the fuck's going on there? What the hell? And he bum rushes him. He steps in there and, well, where's Jake? The the, the cell door is wide open. Jake's just kind of gone. Right. He's like, well, and Peyton just stand there going, I don't know. He just, I woke up, but he was gone. Like, what do you mean you just gone? Come over here. And so he slowly walks over to the edge of the cell, sticks his hands through the bars so he can handcuff him. And as he's doing that, out of nowhere. Comes a third fist. <laughs> Boom. Cold cocked. Off they go. And here comes here comes Emmett riding up the middle of the street, leading the right. Pinto. And there was some gunfire that kind of alerts people in town. Because what's a jailbreak without some gunfire? But just before this all happens, a little boy, maybe that's maybe that's the other boy. Right, runs into, that's Jake Kasdan. 
well, Sheriff, no, come now. I thought that was, is he still the stable boy? I guess it is. And he goes, come now. And they find the gallows on fire. Right. It's going up in flames. Diversion. It's a diversion. The irony is that Emmett had no idea <laughs> that Jake was already, had broken out. Right. There was no communication with them ahead of time. Well, we don't know anyway. We don't. Because, because Peyton getting tossed in the cell wasn't planned. He didn't plan walking in there and shooting that guy so he can get tossed in the cell with them. But like we said at the beginning, Emmett is a smart fella, and Emmett yep. had a plan that neither one of those other guys was privy to. Right, right. <laughs> Clearly, of the three of them, it was Emmett that set the fire to the gallows because who else could have done it? Correct. And that was his diversion to go over there, take care of the deputies, and break them out with a key as opposed to what had happened. <laughs> right. But by the time Emmett shows up with the three horses, he already got Payton and Jake in a gunfight with, with Cleese and his men. Right. <laughs> So it's like, oh, it's going to be like that, huh? All right, so the boys hop on the horses, and the three of them, woof, off they go. All the while, Sheriff Langston and his boys are in hot pursuit. I mean, they're up their ass chasing after them, crossing the river. For, for some reason, I thought when they got to the river, when Langston's men got to the river, I thought some of them got, I thought, I just remember the horses kind of going under. I'm thinking of something else, obviously, because that's not what happens. But they all make their way across the river and getting chased to this really wide open area up in the mountains. And they're getting close to them, like really close to them. Next thing you know, Posse is getting shot at from God knows where. No, just well, where's that shot coming from? It wasn't those guys. Do they have a back to us? Right, and it's ringing out of the canyons. And it's just oh, it's so good. And who is it? Holy shit! It's Mao. It's Daddy Glover to the rescue with, with his rifle yeah, up in the rocks, man. taking shots, and he's shoot, he's hitting everything he shoots at. Everything. Everything, man. He's he hasn't missed once. And there's a big payoff later because Danny Glover has a great line about that rifle. Oh, yeah. Mal decides, hey, you know what? I'm going to hang out with (laughs) y'all. So the four of them, off they go. It's the first time we see the four of them together riding off together. And it won't be the last time either. And what a beautiful shot it is of the four horses. And they're they're running. I mean, dude, that is such a hard shot to get. That's something else about this movie that I always found mesmerizing is the camera work in it. It is supposed to be a throwback to those you know, two. Oh, yeah. John Ford, Howard Hawks. Right. I mean, it's all of that. What I found interesting, again, again uh, John Bailey was the, the DP on this, did some fantastic work in the, in the 80s and 90s, even though his career started way, way, way back in the day. But he's done some really great stuff. Pope of Grimwich Village, for example. He also, but he, the big chill was, was his first time working with Lawrence Kasdan. Well, he's done a lot of great stuff. But what I found really interesting about this movie, and there's times where they really make the use of the space. Oh, yeah. And where they really make the use of the composition of the two, three, or actually shot two, three, nine, I think. You really see it a lot, but then there's times where they have them framed, like intentionally think in mind, like, all right, well, this is a talkie talk scene. So we're, we're going to put you guys right in the center of the image. So when they do that crop later on for, for home video, then we're okay. Because this is some, this is a time when they're really paying attention to that kind of shit. Because '85 is right in the midst of of the VHS explosion, right? But that is that is the only drag to some of the the camera work in this. Because overall, it's phenomenal and just oh, the explosion, yeah, absolutely. Especially without us kind of being you know in that that whole mode lately of of the aspect ratio fucking that some of these streaming services have been doing and. Again, 100%. It is presented in scope. No matter which digital version you see, it should be in scope because it was for me on, on uh, I think for you, it was Amazon. I mean, uh, uh, something I know I saw it on Amazon and then iTunes was fine. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, the disc is definitely uh, in scope 
it's it's two three nine cropped black bars, man. My favorite. It's fine, and it, it works perfectly fine in this movie. And it's it, and my image is fine. I just know there's a better version out there. Just somebody just take the time and really make an effort because the movie deserves the attention. Dude, shout, shout factory should be all over this movie. Seriously, I just don't see why. Because now, I mean, almost everybody involved with the movie is still around. You know, you 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 definitely want to. Hell, even John Bailey's still around. Yeah. I mean, he's 70, he's like, he's like 78 this year or something like that. That's stuff. Yeah, so. That still can get on the mic and talk. Absolutely. Yeah. So, man, they're on their way now. I mean, they've made a clean break. The river, they've shot everybody up. The Cleese and his men are like, fuck it. So four of the guys get to Silverado. Emmett and Jake go to visit their sister. Their brother-in-law is actually the land agent for the area. And that's where we find out that Ethan McKendrick, that name that we mentioned before, he's trying yes. to take over. He's trying to maintain an open range. And he has a huge herds of cattle. Range wars. <laughs> get you that little foreshadowing there. Go for the for a couple of moments later. But before we get there, and we follow Mal off to go see his family's ranch. He's headed home to see his father, Ezra. But. You know, Peyton goes into the saloon and becomes familiar with Stella. Played by the lovely, wonderful Linda Hunt. She's so great in this movie. She's the best. And then the way Peyton treats her is just. Yeah, their relationship's really, really sweet. Yeah. And you really get an understanding what kind of guy Peyton is. Like he's, he's, you're seeing the kind of douchers he used to run with, but now you're seeing he is a changed man. He's really. Shows that he's really a caring individual now. He's not some some piece of shit that's out there stealing stealing gold from people and killing everybody. By the way, I'm pretty sure the four of them kill more people than anybody in this movie. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Klein kills 27 people by himself. So <laughs> they the all deserve is, it, man. They all had it coming. Yeah, but what's great is that all four of these guys have they're very judicious about their ammo usage, unlike Steven Seagal. <laughs> Correct. Who just sprays like he's got unlimited supply yeah, of rounds. Man, totally. Anyway, so we leave the three of them in Silverado for Mal to go see his family. And then when he gets to the ranch, we see there's cattle everywhere. I'm like, oh, those are McKendrick's cattle, right? Absolutely. But the place is a, just completely disheveled and the house is burned down and Mal's just devastated. He's working through the wreckage. And while he's sitting down, he finds a locket and he's looking at it, just kind of dealing with it. And I'm pretty sure that locket was implied that it was his mom's locket. Yeah, definitely supposed to be his mom's. All of a sudden, the shotgun barrel comes into the frame, pulls back, and you hear the voice, Mal. And it's his father, played by the awesome Joe Seneca. Dude, Joe Seneca, man. can say nothing Dude. but awesome things about him. He's wonderful in this movie, too. He's great in this. He's great in Crossroads. I just, I've been watching Spencer for Hire. All right. <laughs> and oh he gosh. was in the episode, he was, the, he was Hawk's trainer. Angela Bassett plays the daughter. What a crazy episode. Uh, you know, again, 1980s TV. Uh, but yeah, man, I love Seneca. Always. He's so, I mean, seriously, I mean, what a great double bill these two movies would have been together just to see just the Joe Seneca highlights. But he's not in this a lot. He's great in it. But it really kind of whets her appetite for what he brings in Crossroads. Because, man, like I said, I was not very aware of him i was super interested in that movie because of i'm like steve i plays guitar in it that's where i was really excited for right but to see him in this is just so sweet knowing that he's just a short while away from a movie that was going to be so so influential on me wanting to play guitar and but he's so wonderful in it. and even he was never bad at anything he was no he was i mean i'm gonna i'm just gonna say he's also in the blob yes 
But he's a bad guy in the blob. Yeah, it's great though. And you yes. know, he's also I think the last thing I remember seeing him in was Time to Kill. Right. He was the uh, Reverend yeah. he was Reverend Street, I think. Yeah, what a what a fucking great actor he was, man. Yeah. He died not long after that movie was released. He's another one of those guys that kind of really didn't get a footing in mainstream movies until he yeah, was, was way 50s in, in, or so. Yeah, yeah. So you, you got that a lot in the in the in the 80s and I think that had a lot to do with it was TV guys that were getting they're getting them cheap to be in the feature films. And I think it had a lot to do with why and how you were seeing more TV guys showing up in feature films cuz man and something we don't touch on a lot in our conversations is how much the 80s was tax shelter time for movies and everything. <laughs> it was just a big, it's a place for people to make independent movies and just shove them out there laundering money or whatever it is they're trying to do with, <laughs> with their money was not uncommon. Absolutely. Hedge funds. <laughs> so while they're there, Mal is sitting there with, a, with his father and Ezra's just breaking down to him what happened. And uh, it's also no, no surprise to us. This McKendrick piece of shit, he's involved in it. And what well, we discover in time that he's not exactly uh, a formidable foe. <laughs> it's just, it's the people, he just surrounds himself with the with the right despicable types right. that protect his assets and his ass for that matter. Well, we find out also that that Mal's sister, Ray, is going off on her own. She doesn't, he doesn't really say that she's in town, but, you know, we figure that out when we, the next time we see this girl and they say her name. In the middle of the family reunion, like, you know, we're, we're getting the lowdown from Ezra. And what happens is two douchebags show up. Yeah. Assholes. Right. And they're pretty clear about uh, whose land they think it is. Right. Regardless of whose house was there and, uh, you know, what, what these guys have to say about it. Right. Mal says, get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, he basically says, well, you know, you two guys can FO and bail. Or, you know, you ever seen what the Henry rifle can do to somebody when they know what they're doing with it? Boom. Boom. Out pops Ezra <laughs> from behind him. Yep. Just ready to fucking put some holes in the guys. Like, yeah, well, man. Like, to put some big holes in well, somebody. It's okay. We'll head into town in the morning and talk to the land agent and we'll figure this all out. We'll sort this out in the morning. Cobb eventually offers for Peyton a job there to handle the supervisory of the, the gambling that goes on in the saloon that he's been hanging out with. That's Stella runs because he owes him 13 bucks and he knows if he doesn't give him a job, he'll never see that money. Never going to see that money. <laughs> what an odd number too. 13 bucks, 13 bucks. Unlucky 13. Yeah, no. I guess we'll I mean, see. I just thought it was funny. What happens is Cobb ends up firing Kelly, who's handling the gambling supervision at the saloon. And that is our buddy, Richard Jenkins. Yeah, man. Totally. So funny too. Like I, you know, I've seen this movie a dozen times and never really realized that that was Richard Jenkins until now. It's so unrecognizable. So weird. Even when you know it, you're kind of looking through all the hair and the chops. And the mustache <laughs> and the, and the, you know, you're like, that, that, is that Richard Jenkins? I mean, uh, yeah. Oh, and then, you know, you hear him talking like, oh, that, that's Richard Jenkins. But it's funny. It's like you, since then, we've seen him in so many things, but we hear the more aged voice coming out of him. So you're not hearing that exact voice that we've been hearing for 20 plus years. Right. It sounds unusual. So it says. Right. It sort of develops over time. Right. You know, and then, you know, you go back and see things and you're like, wait, wait, that doesn't sound like him. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have a lot of lines in the movie until he, nope. gets, until he gets fired. <laughs> right. We see him a few times, but yeah, I mean, he doesn't really say anything until, you know, until Cobb says, you're out, pal. Yeah. Beat it. 
we're discovering what kind of douchebag Cobb is. We're, we're discovering that Cobb is that guy that Peyton was was given the look to when they first had the run in Turley. Like, oh, this guy's not good. This guy's bad news. We also met Tyree back in Turley. And that shifty little bastard is going to show up here before too long. Yeah, that's why Cobb was in Turley. And this is the, we're, we're doing a Quentin Tarantino retelling here. We're <laughs> jumping around right? the timeline here. But while they were in Turley, that's why Cobb was there. Cobb was there to crack his one of his old posse out of jail, played by the wonderful Jeff Fahey. And man, even on the young wide, Jeff Fahey, even in the wide shots, his eyes like cut through the screen. Right? I mean, good lord, man. I mean that that guy had like a thousand yard stare, no yep. matter what. And those eyes were like, you know, not quite Paul Newman, but very, very recognizable and you know. It's the thing you notice the first time you look at the guy. Almost to the point, it made me think, watching the second time this week, I wonder if he ever employed some contact lenses to chill those things out. Because, I mean, they come into play and they really work to his benefit with Lawnmower Man. You're right. A hundred percent. I feel like that between, but I mean, I feel like, you know, he, he, they come into play in body parts. Oh, true. You know, and even in uh, White Hunter Black Heart, mm. I remember... They're they're very much more dialed down into the Paul Newman, you yeah. Know, kind of because he's you know he's playing a more sort of handsome lead type actor, right? In the film, but yeah, I mean we 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 go back to Charlie. You know he's he's been jailed for something, and Cobb is there to extradite him or whatever. <laughs> and then, and there's no extradition, whatever it was, because he came out yeah. with, with him massaging his wrists, <laughs> right? Oh, ah. I'm, I'm like man, that guy. If, you know, the one thing they probably got cut out was him handing over his deputy badge and off he, <laughs> off he right? went. I mean, so now we know that there's a past between, he used to ride with Peyton and Cobb, right. Tyree. And right. maybe Tyree became the number two man when Peyton left. Probably. It's kind of my sort of what I pieced together just from the dialogue and the disdain that Tyree has for Peyton. And we get that opportunity for Emmett to see what kind of a piece of shit Cobb is because right after firing Kelly and he runs out of the saloon, he comes back in to kill him, but we don't see him. He just sticks, starts to stick his hand over the saloon doors and Linda Hunt said, no, Kelly, he'll yeah. kill you. And yeah. then he killed, he didn't even put down his drink. Nope. <laughs> He's holding Emmett's coffee. Yeah. He's drinking Emmett's coffee. When he's trying to get him to just like, hey, you know what? Just stay out of my shit, you know? Right. I'm, I'm taking care of business. I'm I'm taking care of McKendrick. Damn it. Well, because they, they know who Emmett is. There's there's a secret of past. There's there's a, there's a, Emmett carries a secret which we don't really we're never privy to, like from the word. But we see in his actions what kind of guy he is, and Cobb knows who Emmett is. The just the type. Right, and you know he knows that he's dangerous. Emmett. Right, we, we well, that was the we got early on when Emmett met with when first saw Mal in in the uh, saloon back in Turley. He's a good read of people by the way they carry themselves. I think it's a, he just he's just a good study of everybody. I, I think Emmett was on to him like from Jump Street, and Cobb sensed that he was on him. That he just kind of knows that he's not. Yeah, he knows some made kosher in Denmark or Silverado. But one thing that that moment proves to Peyton. Cobb has not turned over a new leaf. He is the same guy as always the worst part. He's the worst kind of person. Now he's that same douchebag, but now he's got the power of the badge behind him. Right. And he's, and he's dangerous. Exactly. He's a killer. This is not the sheriff from first blood. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> There's no, cause he's, uh, he's an unlawful sheriff. 100%. Right. He's a thug with a badge. It's the worst kind. 
He's kind of like whiter. So what's so funny is like right after, oh my gosh, this is a great little moment. I, I'm almost positive this was ad-libbed. But right after Traden, he kills Kelly, he's holding his, the coffee, Emma's coffee still in his hand, in his left hand. And he like licks his, his hand right by his thumb, like where he spilled the coffee. Right. <laughs> that was just so great. It was just so, yeah, I just killed a man. I'm going to lick the coffee off my hand now. Yeah, totally. Danny, he plays it perfect too. Oh, I mean, yeah. there's not a moment that he's on screen in this movie where he kind of has more screen presence than anybody else in the movie. Weird. He does. Maybe it's just because we're... We're used to seeing him in that kind of role. And Because for me, this was the first time I'd seen Kevin Klein in anything where he wasn't kind of, wasn't talky or like, you know, the big chill or, you know, violets are blue or, you know, right. this was kind of a different kind of role for Klein for me at the time. And I think maybe, and, and maybe it has something to do with it, I, maybe just we know that he just passed, so I'm extra focused on every scene that he's in. Like we said last week, he has a a presence about him. It doesn't matter what the role is, what the movie's about. Whenever he's on screen, you know that director and that DP are fighting over just throwing that hard close-up on him or just that standard close-up of those eyes, dude. Because those eyes, you trust those eyes, but at the same time, you don't trust them. Right. Because he yeah. just has that look about him. Because, again, that's just maybe our, you know, our cinema history of seeing him play all those kinds of roles. That I'm like, all right, I can't trust you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also that shit-eating grin of his, you know. Yes. Mischievous. It was used good or bad. Yep. But that was probably his highlight moment in the movie was just that exchange between... It was a great scene, too. You get five people in that scene. If you think about it, there's two shots total. Right. The one down at that table level, and there's one where they had it upright just so you could watch him shoot Jenkins outside. Right. Just that synergy between the five of them is so good, and it's just, I hate the fact they use the word synergy. I'm a fucking douche. I just like the, yeah, it was cracking, man. I mean, the scenes, that's that thing, all these scenes, all of the dialogue scenes are just as exciting and cracking with excitement as the action scenes. 100%. That's one of the reasons why this movie doesn't feel the duration that it is because it's so evenly paced with the action and with the dialogue. And the dialogue is used sparsely. There's not a lot of talking going on. You watch a lot of other, you know, a lot of other uh, Westerns, a lot of the Westerns that it's actually modeling itself after get a little talky because they're two hours and 45 minutes long. The movies are so long they have intermissions. Right. They're classic, but as Kazan was smart, both actually Lawrence and Mark were both smart the way they wrote it to just keep things as trim as possible. How many deleted scenes are on that DVD? There's like five, I think, on the DVD. And then they talk about several others during the uh, little featurette with Lawrence Kazan and, and Mark's on there as well. But they talk about several other sequences like the doc, uh, the doctor sequence that was cut out. All of the sequence stuff they cut out with Roseanne Arquette and the wagon train, the whole love triangle. There was, there's a ton. I think the first cut of this movie was 255. The movie is probably what, 180, 190, 190 pages, something like that? Oh, I would say, yeah, easily. Yeah. yeah. Two, two, so it was what? It was, it was two hours and 55 minutes long. <laughs> so what well, is yeah, that? That's, yeah, that's yeah. 175 minutes. Yeah. So it depends on how precious they were about how they were writing their action. Considering Lawrence had, you know, had written Empire and Jedi, I got to think he's probably a little more efficient with his action telling, probably single line, maybe two lines. Right. I just think that they, you know, they went big, they went big sprawling, like, you know, how the West was oh, one yeah. kind of vibe. And yeah. that's kind of the, the, rag, the wagon train and the stuff they ended up cutting out. 
most of, I feel like that was probably that storyline probably suffered the most. Right. So Jenkins is dead in the street. There's an <laughs> opening at the casino. <laughs> and apparently it's now Peyton's job. Yeah. And he gladly accepts it. <laughs> gladly. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he sort of doesn't have any choice. Cobb is kind of insisting that he takes it. And he, part of it's out of just because of the kind of guy he is. Right. Uh, and he knows that if he doesn't take it, that somebody worse is going to take it. And we don't know what's going to happen to Stella. And he, he has. Right. The thing is, his, it goes beyond the obvious immediate personal concerns he's got for Stella. But the people in the town, because he knows that if he, if for some reason, if he doesn't take this job, well, who knows what Cobb would do to him anyway. He owes him 13 bucks and apparently it's a big deal to him. Well, he keeps bringing it up. <laughs> he does. The <laughs> $2. Right. So uh, the thing about it with him is like, you know, yeah, he's, I'm, he's more of what we're about leaving this town in his, in Cobb's hands. Cause he knows if I would ever leave, even if you were to pay him back his 13 bucks, he knows that it's always going to, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And at that point, I don't, we don't know how Mal's family has been affected. He, you know, Peyton doesn't know what's happened yet. Right. So he's just going based on his shitty experience with Cobb in the past and what just happened in front of him, considering maybe he turned over a new leaf. Because all you're hearing about before that, the baddies are always McKendrick's men, McKendrick's men, McKendrick's men. But once Cobb reveals to Peyton, hey, I'm here to take care of McKendrick's dealings, then he realizes, oh, you're on the take. You're, you haven't turned over anything. Yeah. All you've turned over is another sack of money. <laughs> hmm Yeah, we, we cut to Mal and Ezra hidden up in the caves. And Ezra steps out, go down with a bucket to get some water. And he gets ambushed by McKendrick's men. And not just ambush, man. <laughs> right. They just march straight up murder him. They murder him, man. It's murder. Mal hears the gunshot and gets up, runs down to the river. He finds his dad all caught up in the branches and everything, prophecy style. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Totally right. I had a flashback. <laughs> so he pulls his dad out of the water. And we don't see anything more of it. I'm glad they didn't hang on that very long we already know he's dead or dying right they didn't do him pounding the marker into the ground no and next time it comes around they were at the land office yep and mckendrick's men are there to cause some more problems now i wanted to point this out too because we we didn't mention this but earl hyman plays jt that's that's the that's the man that's running he's the he's the land agent for the area and that jake and emmett's brother-in-law right and that is also, for those of you that pay attention to television in the 80s and early 90s, that is Wilson, the next-door neighbor to Tim Allen on Home Improvement. Indeed it is. I had to point that one out to Melody, too. She didn't know who it was. And I'm like, oh, and I got reminded about it not until the second time this week that I watched it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's Wilson. I think I, I, think I didn't pick it up until the movie was almost over. Uh, well, well, we'll get to it. I can tell you, yeah. when, I rem- I can tell you when I figured it out. <laughs> So McKendrick's men come in there, just shoot the place up. They set the place on fire to all the the land books. Obviously, this was McKendrick's way of of dealing with all the land problems that he's been having and whose land is what. Well, you know what? If there's no record, then it's all mine because he's got a bunch of, he got a big old posse that says it's mine. So this gets set on fire. And then what they do? They grab the kid. They grab Augie and (laughs) he pieces out. I'm like, damn, man. Now they're kidnapping. They're shooting fools, burning houses down, and stealing kids. Right? Yeah. Murdering folks and burning shit up. So bad. Just add that to the list of these these guys are bad guys. (laughs) They're bad guys. Bad guys. Bad guys. Captain Stella, and when this place is on fire, the whole town's trying to put the fire out 
bucket you know, brigade bucket style. brigade style and then eventually Cobb walks up to Peyton and just says stop there's no, this is no good and then basically threatens Stella threatens her life to Peyton and say dude <laughs> you got to take care of business here I I'm running this town now I'm working for McKendrick and if you don't stop this shit I'm going to make things really tough on Stella yeah basically just this is where he showed his colors yep scumbag scumbag because you know you you can kind of give him a pass to a certain point with kelly because kelly drew on him (laughs) and we don't know what kelly kelly seemed like he could have also been you know cooking the books or you know skimming money i don't know up until Cobb gives this confession i remember the first time i saw it i was like well i don't know maybe you know i'd seen enough westerns to know that you know guys are you know it's a hard place to live yeah you know the west is hard later on stella and peyton are having a conversation and she knows that Cobb is threaten her life and using that against paying to blackmail him to make sure he keeps him right and not getting in his way and she just says you know what the only way this is going to end is if you kill him right there's no uh there's no way out for payton without killing Cobb. augie's gone mal gets in some trouble and emma jake and payton kind of help out and find right. out that augie's been snatched so the four of them descend on the mckendrick's ranch by setting off a stampede of all of his cattle good <laughs> lord dude what a Freaking amazing sequence! What right? an amazing shot! The, the initial shot, you're just like, "What?" Sorry, sorry, everybody. No CG going None. on here. These are all legit animals, and there are a lot of them. There's a lot of them, Man. and they and they just bum rush the ranch, knocking shit down. They full on ambush every all of his all of his men, and to the point it's just, oh, there's some great shit. Well, I mean, there's a, and there's a full on gunfight going on in the middle of all this over the place stampede. I mean, you got, you I got, mean, we got guys everywhere. You got the main house where McKendrick's held up with some other dudes on the first floor and the second floor. And then the higher gun outhouse, if you will, <laughs> the guest right? house. They got guys coming out of there too. But that's where Mal is. Mal's sitting up on top of that with this. Rifle. With the Henry rifle, yeah, you know, pulling the rigs. He's he's the rigs of this movie, man. He's yeah, man. he's the sharpshooter. Again, he's hitting everything he shoots at. Yep, he's he's a good shot. <laughs> so they end up taking care of business, rescuing Augie. Everybody's dead, but McKendrick gets away. He escapes the Silverado, which doesn't surprise me because he's he's not a very strong type. McKendrick isn't. He's nah. He's your typical. You know, he's like Ed Asner in El Dorado. Right. He is. Yeah, Mister Jason. Yep. Just with, a, just with a different name. They head into Silverado with this shot, dude. Oh, the shot where they're up on the hill looking over Silverado. And then they all just take off down the hill towards the town. Riding balls and, out. And just separating. When you see them, it's one thing if you if they're all riding together tightly. And it's another thing. When they, when they disperse off in their own path, you're like, all right, there's a plan here. And they're going to. Yeah, yeah. It's just. Just such so smart the way and that shot is so beautiful too. This is where individual wrongs are being righted by Jake, by Mal. Oh yeah. By Emmett and by and Payton. Payton. Yeah. Everybody's past comes into play in this movie and everybody's past gets dealt with in the present. And I thought that was just dude, it's so smart. It's it's the hero's journey four times. You know, it's really just that kind right. of thing. Right. It's it yeah. It's it's four heroes' journeys. I mean, it, yep. everybody has their own quest. Right. And we we get to see all those through, which is awesome. Right. Uh, so Jake has Jake is Jake's in pursuit uh, by Tyree and, and his other and one of his other guys. Oh. And he's super smart, dude. It's, it's just so great. He just runs into this into the saloon, 
kind of coax them into there. And what's so great about it is there's a little insert shot that you see, well, more than an insert shot earlier in the movie, where Stella, if you know Linda Hunt and her size, she's not a very tall lady. Right. But they had a special ramp behind the bar, the saloon bar there, for her to kind of raise her higher up and kind of tend to, to customers. That is where Jake is hiding. He's hiding underneath her. So when Tyree and the other guy come floating in there, they can't find him. Well, that's a good reason. He comes out, stands right outside the saloon doors, which is are in the corner. There's a, there's a, a saloon, a type where it's just built into the side of a, yes, a building. Absolutely. It's right on the corner. And he stands on the corner. They pull wide. Tyree's on one side and the other baddie's on the other. Gives him a little whistle. And they both turn around and he just pulls both guns and just whoosh, simultaneously takes them both out. Dude, I love that piece. And to see, it's funny because, you know, there's, I love when the guy, you know, the Tyree type, um, you know, in Tombstone, it was Johnny Ringo. But when they really did just get theirs without much of anything, you right. know, and it's yeah. just like, <laughs> that that moment is great. And then we cut. I love it because we get all four of them. Everybody gets their come up as in, in these orders. And, you know, up next is Mal, right? Mal makes his way in to find Ray. Uh, Ray was been shot. She was helping Mal break out of jail. The deputy shot her when she stabbed him in the back. And Stella's been hiding her in the shack in the back. We forgot to talk about the dirty douchebag, yeah. Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum playing Slick. I mentioned him earlier, but so, right. so, so Slick sees Stella coming out of the guest house in the back. And so he goes down there to find Ray laying there uh, while he's sitting there with her. Mal finds her, finds the room, and he comes in there. He's like, oh, he's just trying to play it up like he's been there and he's there helping her. And then basically they have their little standoff. And the best part about this one Slick gets it with his own knife. Yeah, man. Poetic justice. This is also the first time I think I had ever seen Goldblum play anything that wasn't funny uh, other than, you know, his early days in Death Wish. But I knew him mostly at, at this point up in my life. I was 15 uh, as a comedic actor. Yeah. And yeah, it was like so weird to see him, you know, playing like a douchebag. <laughs> right. And honestly, if he doesn't do this movie kind of playing the other side of the coin... Does he do the fly? Yeah, who knows? I mean, right? I mean, it kind of like the next time I next time we saw him in a movie, he was yeah, he was you know Seth Brundle. Yep. Now Slick's dead, bleeding it out on his own knife. That, that's how he deserves to go. What's so great too is the first time that we see Slick earlier in the movie, where it's just Jeff Goldblum. He comes in and says, "I want I want an honest game." There, there's a dead man lying in the middle of the street, <laughs> and and who's the dead man? Kelly. This is right after Peyton's got his new job. <laughs> yeah. So He's in, in charge here. He has no words after that. And the next thing you see him to kind of let you know what kind of an honest guy Slick is, when Peyton's getting into it with somebody, he's reaching down to his left boot for this knife that you're eventually going to see later on. So I thought it was perfectly that you let you know the thing about him, man. He's not honest. He's a piece of shit, even though he says, I want an honest. Anytime a gambler says, I want an honest game. He's a piece of shit. He's a piece of shit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's playing the total like riverboat gambler. I mean, it's, you know. Yeah. This character is, in so, you know, he's a stock Western character, but it's kind of, it's fun. Goldblum does his own thing with it. I enjoyed the shit out of him in the movie. Yep. Even though, you know, again, playing against type. Exactly. So the next one that's kind of rap, wrapping his, his story lined up is Emmett and McKendrick are going at it. And I thought that was so neat because everybody's dealing with their past. Emmett and McKendrick are really going at it because of the here and now. Yeah. We've already proven early on that Emmett is a much smarter man than he leads on to the rest of the world. And McKendrick is the complete opposite. They're going at it. Unfortunately for McKendrick, Emmett's a very smart dude. So 
when Emmett ends up dropping his gun because he gets <laughs> McKedrick takes a shot at him and puts a hole in his rifle. Can't use the rifle anymore, so now he has just a handgun. And they're kind of going at it, but Emmett loses him. And he's like, sorry, standing in your building, right? Right. And out comes Emmett on his horse, and his horse <laughs> kicks McKendrick. Kicks McKendrick in the head, killing him. Oh, dude, I literally, even watching it last night again, I cheered. I literally, unprovoked, I was like, yes, I scared the shit out of my dogs. Yep. It's like, well, what? It's such a great moment because you're just kind of like, it is. Oh, it's just the point. Because it's a wonderful payback because Emmett had his shit kicked out of him by a horse, by his men earlier in the movie. Yeah. Which is what put him in the state he was in when Mal had to nurse him back. But I love, by the way, I throw back to that too. When, when Mal's in the cave oh. with Emmett and Emmett's, his, Emmett's all fucked up from getting stepped on a couple of times by Fahey. And then once he tells Emmett that they got Augie, got his nephew, dude, off comes, he's off like, comes the, <laughs> yes, right. It come, he pulls off the bandage yeah. and the score, boom, 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 boom. It, it lets you know that it's on, it's on yes. from that moment. 100%. And that's another, oh, we got to mention that too. We're, we're going to talk about it after, right? We're going to talk, yeah. we're going to, we're going to, we're going to blow through, but there's many, many things about this movie. Yeah. They're awesome. Yeah, for sure. Our, our second baddie has been taken care of. Or well, third baddie, right? Right. We're just down. It's just Payton and Cobb left. So they, and I, oh, dude. Oh, God damn it. Dude, they, how great is this last sequence? Dude, when they come out and they're just kind of standing there. And I feel like, cause I just saw it two days ago. So in my head, I was like, cause he's all dusty. And I'm like, uh, Cobb, can we do this tomorrow when it's not so windy? <laughs> right, right, right. Totally. But watching, watching Payton come out there and it just, uh, at this point, what I love about it is the first time you see him, he's in his long johns. He's literally, he's literally the lowest point of his life, right on, on on the cusp of dying. And now you see him from boot to hat. He's himself. He is that guy that used to run with Cobb, but externally, but now internally, he's just a different guy. And I just love it because you just you get that moment the last time you see him complete 180 from what you how we were introduced him in the movie and uh, and just the way we're seeing this last sequence i mean you know payden steps out into the street and behind payden is a deserted town with this big beautiful white church behind him yep and then the reverse is uh as Cobb gets up off the porch of the sheriff's office and he steps out into the street and now we're looking at Cobb standing in the middle of nothing but the great expanse of the desert behind him man yep. and it's like the wild west as opposed to civilization and moving forward you know it's it's such a great oh yeah great shot and it's and the imagery is all there you got the church representing good yeah and then you got the vast emptiness representing hell right the unknown out there in the desert oh god it was so so many smart choices in this movie and i it just blows me away how it's overlooked so often when people talk about not just westerns but just fun great western fun movies yeah it, so they have their face off man and they say their goodbyes to each other right it's just right because so, both of them are just as confident as the other that the other one's dying <laughs> yeah you know good times but man boom down goes Cobb when he and I, I'm just waiting for it because I it tears me up when I see it happen because it's so moving it's so fucking kick ass is when then he takes a knee yeah, he when turns. He goes, oh, yeah, dude. I know, man. I just watched. I just watched that sequence again this morning, 
um, because there's a gunfighter. There's a whole thing about gunfights on this two disc DVD. Yeah. And they go into that piece where he's, and dude, yeah, when he turns and he falls to one knee and then he's kind of, and then he falls face forward dead. Yeah. It's, he's only on his knee long enough to go, oh, and then you're still kind of groaning. He goes face first. Yeah. A dude, a man that size taking a knee the way he does too. I mean, he takes it hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, man. It's like when you see a bad guy go like in Die Hard, when you see Hans go over the, you see Cooper go over the side, you're like, oh, it has to happen, but oh, it sucks. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I feel that that's a tribute to the writing and also, you know, to the acting and to the kind of actor that, you know, in this case, Dennehy was. Right. We know he's a bad guy from the outset, from the moment he shows up. We're not too sure how bad or what his thing is, but we know. But even like at the end when he go, and I feel like there's probably, a, I mean, I feel Payton, there's a, there's a, there's a sadness in Payton for having, because at some point him and Cobb were friends. Right. Somewhere along the line, which we don't know. I wish we could have gotten like a prequel. Right. Like I feel like that that both both Cobb and Payton may have, like you said, may have been friends. And I think I and I mean I talked about I talked about Payton changing. I don't think maybe he changed. I think he had a change of heart, which is why he left Cobb years before that. Right. I, I think he's always been like Payton isn't the one that changed over time. Cobb is the one that changed. Yeah. All the storylines close nicely. They don't feel rushed for a movie that's as long as it is. <laughs> right. There's, there's nothing rushy about it. Yeah. Overall, it just, oh, yeah, so good. Right. Jake and Emmett, they leave together, but not before Emmett and Payton have their uh, weird sort of <laughs> moment where. Right. He he says, hey, "Look, man, you're not gonna trip over my ghost." Uh, blah blah. Like what? Right. And then like he's like, "I already got a job. I'm the sheriff." And yeah. um, but Rosanna Arquette, where does she figure into all this? Um, Who knows? You know, because I don't know. There was a weird moment where like I feel because that storyline never really sort of got fleshed out. That, right. but I was, but I kind of thought there was like something between um, you know Linda Hunt, but Linda Hunt and Payton. There was some sort of. I don't know. It was weird, man. It was, it was interesting because I didn't want any of them to end up with anybody because it wasn't important to me when I was 15. No, no. Well, I guess I, I made jokes about it today and I made jokes about it a few days ago. But when Mal and Ray are now in their wagon and they're driving off together to rebuild. They look married. The, right? And I'm like, <laughs> all right, we're off for go. We're going to have some inbred kids. I was, I was like, like, what is going Yeah, totally. I was like, this. That, yeah, <laughs> it struck me the same way. I was like, hmm. Yeah, we're off to California, wherever they were going. I was just like, wow. I guess we're supposed to assume they're going to go rebuild the Johnson homestead. Yeah, just outside. Yeah. Right. And who takes all over McKendrick's land? Yeah, right. How do we that. divvy that up? It's that. Oh, it's all Payton's land now. Yeah, well, yeah, dude. What we don't see is in five years, Payton is Cobb. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Silverado. God bless it. I loved, I just love this movie. And here's the thing. We didn't even do it justice, how great this movie is. No, man. Do me a favor. Bone Tomahawk aside, it's not as grand of a scope of a movie as this is. But how many Westerns have been made since 1985 that are even worth this kind of attention? Oh. I like The Unforgiven, okay. But it's not, Uh, scope-wise, it's not as big as this movie. I'm going to straight out say I would watch this every day of the week over Unforgiven. Um, I don't dislike Unforgiven, but I find that I don't ever need to see it again. It's not very much fun. I don't enjoy it. This movie, I enjoy the shit out of. Right. Uh, this movie is 133 minutes, which is the same running length as Bone Tomahawk. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Very weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can count. I mean, what? Quick and the Dead is another one. 
but uh, you know, Quick and the Dead, Unforgiven, Wyatt Earp. I got one more for you. It's always overlooked. Quickly Down Under. Oh yeah, Quickly Down Under is a lot of fun. That's yeah. something we could talk about at some point because it's another Great. movie I've seen a ton and I love. Yep, it is as big as this movie. It's it. I feel I feel like the only other movie that gets as much kind of well, I think it gets more love, but I don't think it's as good. Uh, and that would be Tombstone. I don't think Tombstone is nearly as good as Silverado. No. Uh, but I feel like it's a movie that people wax all the time about how great it is. And I, I find it to be, I mean, I think I've said it before. It's, it's not a favorite of mine. I'd rather watch Young Guns which or Young Guns 2, which are both way more fun. They're not as good as Silverado either. <laughs> no. But to answer that question, I don't know that there's anything. I mean, there's since 85, I can't really think of anything that's as big and bold and a love letter to the old West and Westerns as this movie. Right. That would include Kazden's own Wyatt Earp, which I do love. Like I said, Young Guns 1 and 2, which I like. Tombstone, which I'm, you know, hey, I don't gravitate toward it. Unforgiven, which is a movie I'd seen once and was plenty. Don't need to see that again. Quick and the Dead, which was better remembered maybe for me than it was watching it again. I mean, I still like it. It's it's still got moments where I'm like, yeah, right. it was great the first time. And every time I've seen it since, I kind of liked it less. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> I can't think of any other Westerns, especially studio Westerns. Yeah. That have, the, I mean, this movie down from the photography, down from the cast, the wardrobe. I mean, they built the town of Silverado. It's a hundred percent built. It was the biggest, uh, it's the biggest, set build western town in the like history of hollywood yeah i believe that i was telling melody when we were watching it said what another thing that stands out about this movie are the builds this isn't them just here in santa Clarita using the same old town that everybody else uses no and there's no fooling around too no especially in in the end when they're like when emmett's going after mckendrick and they're going through town and everything having their gunfight so it's like, man, you're seeing stuff that you didn't see earlier, and they're, and, they're, and like you said, these are full builds, man. They're going between buildings, and then these aren't these aren't just facades propped up with a bunch of two right. by fours in the back. This is legit. There were no, yeah, and they weren't. They were, they were they shot. That was a 96 day shoot, and they you know they basically shot through the winter, and they shot inside those sets. They basically were their sound stages, so they had to be built so that they were able to shoot in the wind and they were able to shoot during the rain and, um, you know, sound wise. I mean, it's a very impressive, and it's funny because the budget's only $23 million. Man. Or 25, depending on, you know, what you're looking at. But, you know, somewhere between 25, 23, $25 million. Jeez. I mean, in the score, dude, let's talk about the score. Not only the town and the builds and the cast and the sprawl of it all, but I mean, let's talk about the score, man. This is a serious Big, big score. And it's coming from a man who's been involved with some really big productions, but the big, bigger movies he's involved in, I mean, he did a lot of television before this. Right. Too. He started in the mid-70s, Bruce Broughton we're talking about here. 80s movies, too, The Presidio, The Rescue, Big Shots, Monster Squad, Harry and the Hendersons, just a whole slew of movies. This guy had, was doing two or three, five movies a year sometimes. Right. But it really didn't engage when it comes to feature films until this movie he did like a lot of smaller ones before that i mean dude this same year that he did silverado he did young sherlock holmes right which is a giant big score itself massive score exactly this one really stepped gave him a chance to step away from the things he'd been doing for television you know doing things for like buck rogers and 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 um 
and Hawaii Five O and things like that. Quincy, like he was the he was the main composer for Quincy, right? Dark ominous tones. Well, he also did the the miniseries How the West Was Won. Uh, I mean, God, I mean, so many things. But to me, this is the standout. Yes, for his career. And this is a man who is still working, right? <laughs> Yeah, he created the theme for the TV show Orville. I think it's actually done now. I think they've—I don't think they brought it back. But that—that that was a big, a big score if, for television. I mean, they got to a point in the last fifteen years; those scores are much bigger on TV now, um, for a lot of reasons. A lot of reasons that uh, synthesizers and, and and samplers have improved so much that what used to be one-time be temp score tools, and just for the sake of the composer writing stuff. Uh, they're able to just take the stuff right off of off of the computer now and run with those scores. It's not it's not always a full orchestra that's behind live orchestras. They behind all these scores, right? But this one is and is oh my gosh, this is the kind of movie where it's deserving of a massive swelling score, and this and it matches the visuals perfectly. Oh man, absolutely! I was gonna say, I've, it's one. Of, I mean, to me, it's like one of the greatest meldings of score and picture uh, yeah. that I can remember. I mean, the funny thing is, and I'm gonna say this, Corey. He also scored Sweet Liberty. <laughs> Didn't have doesn't has the Sweet Liberty have to come up like every like three episodes? Like, is there a reason it's coming up? Do we have to uh, talk about Sweet Liberty? Probably not. No. Good. No. Okay. But it's so funny because like after Silverado, I think it was the same year, 85 or 86, maybe. Yeah. It looks like he did Silverado, Young Sherlock Holmes, and then he did Sweet Liberty. Oh, Sweet Liberty. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this, I mean, I think this thing, this was, it, it's been named on AFI's hundred greatest scores of all time. Yeah. Easily. Um, You know, what's weird is he also scored Tombstone, which to me is not nearly as memorable as the score for Silverado. There's nothing memorable about Tombstone other than <laughs> I, re- I just remember that I don't like it. Yeah, look, man, I just there's just better things for me. There's, there's just better movies. There's a lot better movies. Yeah, it's you know whatever. Like I said, Young Guns one and two <laughs> being two of them. Right. It's funny that he never did another western. Who? Kasdan. I mean, other than Wyatt Earp, I guess I forgot about that. But yes, that and Wyatt Earp. I don't count Wyatt Earp as a western though. It's more of same. a historical yeah. biography, kind of. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's kind of like when, for me, Costner started kind of fell out of favor with me. Yeah, I mean, you know, but there's a lot. Of, I mean, I really do like, uh, I, I do like um, that Wyatt Earp. I, I, like the, I like the fact that it's, it's, a, it's an overview of Wyatt Earp as opposed to just the gunfighter OK Corral. And yeah. Kind of shows that, you know, Earp wasn't such a great character. I mean, wasn't such a man of character. He had his no. own. He had his own agenda. Yes. Me. Me, me, me. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, man, this, it, Silverado. I mean, God, it's been a while since I had seen it. Probably at least, I'm going to say 15 years. Right. But man, I got to say, it's one of the movies. I, I, and I thoroughly enjoyed it both times. I So much the first time I watched it, I wasn't even making notes. I was just literally taken back. I felt like I was 15. And I, was, I had a really nice time watching it. And it, for me, this movie is as good as the day I saw it, July 9th, 1985-ish. Yeah, I saw it actually on my birthday. Oh, really? This is what's going to be fun for me to say this. The day that I turned 16, I saw this movie after I spent all day watching Live Aid. Oh, wow. Yeah. I always remember Live Aid being, it was on my my 16th birthday. 
that was a big full day. I got yeah, up really, I got wow. up early to watch that, and then I went to the movies that night. That's awesome for a kid that wasn't really big into westerns at all of sixteen years old. Right, but yeah. don't do you agree that this movie is as good as it was the day you saw it? Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, just one thing we need: shout. Right, shout factory. I don't care. Shout factory. Do this, Kino. Seriously, man. Whoever, somebody. Hey, look, man. If they can put some of the smallest movies that you've never heard of out, right. Take Good the time, Lord. take the time, because this movie deserves it. And If you can shout select those Bruce Lee movies. <laughs> right? And honestly, right now, what is this? This, this? this year marks the 35th anniversary of this movie. Yeah. And I thought, man, that would have been a good time to put it out. I don't want to wait till five years from now for you guys to put a 40th version out. No, no, yeah, do it. No, no. Do it now. Absolutely. Anyway, so there you go. Silverado. Yeah. Watch it any way you can until we get a boutique version of it. That's what you got. If you want to own it, you can probably pick up this two-disc DVD set that comes with a deck of cards and a fun little book. Otherwise, otherwise you have a choice. You have a 2009 out-of-print book version on Blu-ray, which is averaging $75 per. Yeah, right? I looked to see how much this that thing was and I was like, oh God, God. It's you know, and I don't think that the I don't think the print is gonna be that much different than this DVD, honestly. And the print's not gonna be much better different than the streaming. Yeah, what I got. Yeah. Right. Same thing. I mean, somebody just needs to do this. I don't know who I have to talk to at Shot Factory <laughs> or Kino or any of these other places. Twilight, whoever's doing them. Criterion, dude. I mean, I don't know. Criterion they did the Breakfast Club for God's sakes. Why can't they do Silverado? A uh, Casdan first for Criterion either. They did the Big Chill. Yeah, absolutely. So, where are you at, Criterion? It's not like we're asking for a Fandango or something. Yeah, totally. <laughs> can you do Fandango, please? No, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, if you want to follow us on social media, you can follow Corey on Twitter, I think. Yeah, Twitter. <laughs> at Corey Culp or uh, the official at Karate Pod, or again, Follow me on Letterbox at Corey underscore cult. If you would like to follow Freddie, you can follow me at Raven Shattuck on Twitter, Rock and Roll at 33 on your Instagram, or at Tom Cody on Letterbox. Tom Cody. Yeah, there you go. I may have to change it to Cobb. <laughs> just kidding. Tom Cobb. Tom Tyree Cobb. <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> just mashing it all together. Mashing all right, man. All right. Um, cool, man. Cool. Until next time. <laughs>